I, I was able to attend a Christian scholars conference, which is hundreds of people who love to think and they love to uh, explain to their friends why Christianity is reasonable. And then immediately after, I went to a paranormal conference. How many of you have seen Paranormal Activity or Paranormal Activity 2? It's amazing how much money you can make if you have a good idea uh, and, and very little money to start with. Well, this conference uh, covered topics like aliens and angels and demon possession and ghosts. And part of it was that we met on the Queen Mary. That's a huge ocean liner that was active in the 1930s to the 1960s. It's permanently moored at Long Beach, which is in the Los Angeles area. And it's haunted. And so we had a couple of tours. All we saw on the ghost tour, I mean, actually saw a raccoon. It was a raccoon walking down the railing uh, deep in the bowels of the ship. That was was cool. Um, And actually, we did, in in a serious way, address a number of biblical issues. Uh, I've got a lot of really exciting things coming up. Uh, Vicky and I are going with Ken and Kat Watson, who live in Auburn. We're going to Estonia. Uh, We're going to be teaching over there in Estonia, which is near Russia. Uh, We'll be in Finland and and Sweden as well. In Finland, I've got a debate against some big-time atheist, which will be a real blast. It's on, is it reasonable uh, to to be a Christian? And I'm really looking forward to that. That's later this summer. I've got a media campaign for my next book, which is a lot of radio stuff and TV stuff that starts in a few weeks. And also looking forward to Israel tour, which I'm hoping some of you will sign up for in October. At the end of the year, Singapore, India, Bangladesh, Korea, I'll have a chance to go to Hanoi. And for those of you who are slightly older, you may have more feelings because of the Vietnam era. I've been to Saigon. I've never been to Hanoi. I'm really looking forward to that. People will be joining from Cambodia and Thailand. Uh, popping over to Vladivostok, which is the, in the far east part of Siberia. And um, that's a great honor. And then also to go to Tokyo and Osaka. I talked to Tokyo, all these places I've been in touch with in the last week by telephone and sometimes by email. I asked the, uh, the preacher in Tokyo, how has life changed since, you know, the earthquake and, and, and all this stuff? And he said, basically, this, the nuclear issue, we just don't know anymore. We don't know if it's low level, high level. We just have to go on with life. But it's been very good for us because it's, it's given very obvious opportunities for Christians to serve. And every week... They send a group of, uh, I think, 12 of their members every week, but it's every week, like 600 a year, going to Sendai, which is a a major city, but that's more in the area where the quake really hit. And I know they appreciate your prayers. So, uh, life is always interesting. It's so fun to preach, though. I love to preach the Word of God. And I wanted to to do something from my own quiet times. This year, I kind of go fast and slow. This year, I read the whole Bible, and then I switched into slow gear, I'm reading the New Testament very slowly. I read John, and then this morning I finished Acts. And so I wanted to do something from the book of Acts. Why don't you start to turn there? Acts is, uh, covers 25 years of history. It's really the Acts of Peter and Paul, to be truthful. I wanted to ask you, do you know the three fire passages in Acts? There are three fires in the book of Acts. The tongues of fire, that's at the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. There's the, there's the fire when Paul is shipwrecked. It's the coolest shipwreck scene from all of ancient history on the island of Malta. And he gets bitten by a snake, and they think he's going to die, and then he doesn't, and they say he's a god. But there's another one. And that's the bonfire of the magical scrolls in Acts 19. So you can turn there. 
or if uh, you're so uh, far-sighted, hyperopic that you can't read your Bible, look up on the screen because it'll be up there as well. Acts 19 is an incredibly colorful chapter. It's the chapter where the sons of Sceva try to do exorcism. It's one of the interesting topics I got to speak on uh, last time in California. Uh, We have exorcism, we have a riot, but there's this bonfire, and what in the world is going on? And so I want to give you a little bit of the background. Ephesus, that's the city they're in, which is in western Turkey, Ephesus was a center of magic. They were really big into paranormal activity. It was a center of the occult. And let's read the scripture, and then let me explain it, and we'll make some applications to our lives And what you're looking at, if you're looking up, is the English Standard Version, if you're looking down at something else. But after those uh, those men were unsuccessful in their demon, uh, in their exorcistic attempt, the the honor that came to Christianity increased significantly. And that's the context, verse 17. I'm going to start in verse 18. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is our text. And after the word is preached, the Christians bring their magic scrolls. Now, if you're like me, the first time you read that, you're wondering, you're actually thinking they're not Christians. And they're saying, now hang on, what are they doing bringing their magical paraphernalia? Which is what it is. Weren't you supposed to deal with the paraphernalia before you became a Christian? And then we have this bonfire, which is really Jeremiah 36. In, In Jeremiah 36, you have an evil king of Israel who burns the Bible. Here they're burning, in a sense, the anti-Bible. They're burning the magical scrolls. These guys definitely believed in magic. They were superstitious. But they also believed in Christ. And the text says that they had already come to faith in Christ. They had already become Christians. And I think this makes for a pretty interesting study. The scrolls, some of them were very small, like amulets, miniature scrolls, maybe just a few words. Others could be hundreds of words long. A number have been been discovered. Now, not in Ephesus. In Ephesus, they have a lot of rainfall. And where there's a lot of rainfall... Uh, ancient manuscripts usually rot, as moisture is the enemy of manuscripts. But many contemporary scrolls from this period, this Roman period, have been found in Egypt. And uh, you may have heard of the Egyptian Book of the Dead. People were terribly afraid of what came after death. And they wanted to make sure that they had a good plan. And they would actually pay people to write up good magical spells, which would be written on papyrus and buried with them, and they would pay priests or priestesses to say these special words so that they would be protected so that in the next life, something really bad wouldn't happen. And I could tell you about that, but this isn't about Egypt. I want to talk about Ephesus. These scrolls were popular among Jews and pagans alike. And one thing, it's kind of weird, they, they love to use words from Judaism and Christianity. So they would, into their magical formula, like the abracadabras, they would mention uh, Jesus, or mention the God of of Israel, Yahweh. Or sometimes they would use the word Jerusalem. Not in Jerusalem, but outside Jerusalem. And so I wanted to give you a sample reading, uh, and and I'll I'll go through this. I I don't know exactly the the tone they had when they read it, but this this is real. Okay. A tested charm for those possessed by demons. 
Take oil of unripe olives with herb mastigia and the fruit pulp of the lotus. Boil them with colorless marjoram while saying, And then write, And hang it on the patient. It is terrifying to every demon, a thing he fears. Also, after placing the patient opposite to you, conjure. These are the magical words. This is the conjuration. I conjure you by the God of the Hebrews, Jesus. Who appears in the fire. Who is in the midst of land, snow and fog. Tanetis, let your angel, the implacable, descend and let him assign the diamond flying around this form which God formed in his holy paradise because I prayed to the holy God calling upon Amon Ipsen Tacho. People were really into this. That's one of the longer ones and I actually edited it. I abbreviated it. So people, why would, in the world would they hang on to such nonsense? Well, before we jump too fast, <laughs> I mean, do we hang on to some superstitious practices? When I, when I was a little boy, I used to count my steps. I used to avoid walking on cracks, the sidewalk, but I would count my steps, like, almost as I was marching. It was an absolute obsession. I, there's no question, it was an obsession. I, I, my father told, mentioned once a, a rabbit's foot. I said, what's a rabbit's foot? At this time, I was eight years old. And he bought me a rabbit's foot, dyed orange. It was a keychain. And I like, well, what's a rabbit's foot for? I, I mean, to have good luck. And I guess I had it for a while. I did wonder what happened to the rest of the rabbit. But, uh, <laughs> you know, some of us are afraid to walk under ladders. Sometimes that's good advice. Or you have things with cats. I mean, but these people... Rather than laughing too hard at them, understand that they, are, they have some real fears with life. There's an insecurity, which I think is part of the human condition. Even if you're a fairly confident person, some of us are more confident, some of us are at the other end of the scale, even the more confident have some anxieties. There's some things where we really don't want to go there. And we will take charge of our life or the conversation to protect ourselves. The text says that these magical scrolls were worth 50,000 drachmas, or pieces of silver. Each one of those would be like a day's wage. So if you figured it out, uh, working man, it's a little hard to compare society because they're very different. But let's say at a typical $12 an hour rate, that wouldn't be the highest skilled labor, but it's definitely not minimum wage. That would be about 160 years of labor at six days a week, which is the world standard, I think, about $5 million. Now you could say... Couldn't that have been sold and the money given to the poor? Yes, I suppose, like the alabaster jar of fine perfume that someone broke on Jesus. But not on your life. The Christians were not willing to let these soul-destroying writings be in circulation. So in a way, they, they just kissed $5 million goodbye. And you can do a lot with $5 million. Think of North River. Think of our building. Superstition is still with us today. Ouija boards, tarot cards. If you're a Christian, I ask, do you have any residual superstitious habits? If you think you don't, but you have a good friend or you have a wife or a husband, what would that person say? I think we can all be a bit odd in that way. The point is to leave the future in God's hands. 
People have these kinds of scrolls because they want to have control of what's happening in the future. On the Queen Mary at the Paranormal Conference, I talked about divination. In the old times, divination is it's a way you're trying to divine the future from earthly events. It might be the way a flock of birds goes, or it might be the way smoke goes, or the way tea leaves are in a cup, or what they loved to do was rip open an animal, a large animal, and look at its liver. And that was called hepatoscopy. Hepatoscopy, that's a million-dollar word in itself. They would look at the liver. Later, of course, people would consult gypsies. We have horoscopes. And in our modern age, we have consultants. But the point is that we need to have faith in Christ. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know Him who holds the future. Faith in Christ. Now, the immediate question, when you look at this, look, okay, Christianity is spreading. Many of those who are now believers, they come, confess, and divulge their practices. Huh. Was their baptism valid? This is one question that, that, that I have. I don't have any more, but I, I, I had. I think letting go of false ideas can take time. You might say, well, ideally, they would have grown out of all that immature stuff before they became Christians. Who would disagree? I mean, I, surely that would have been better, but that's not the way it worked out. Repentance is the decision to give our life to God. Repentance is not actually becoming perfect. Repentance is a decision. And you could equally well interpret their coming clean as evidence that the Holy Spirit had been working in their lives. I think this means that in our outreach, in our outreach, we need to be careful not to preach a gospel of works. This ties in with those wise words that Steve Brand shared with us at communion. Being Christians does mean a decisive break with the past, but it most certainly does not mean we've reached perfection, as Paul insists in Philippians 3. But it is a continuing break with the past. Like in Colossians 3, yes, we've died, yes, we've been seated in the heavenly realms, but we need to continually put to death the works of the flesh. We need to continually give God our best. So there's a radical change, but come on, be honest. Which of us doesn't need to continually change radically every day? And that that, that may be one of the strongest uh, reasons to have daily times of prayer and study, which is a very healthy habit if you want to do well spiritually. In this passage, we see that what was their private life becomes public. This is what the Bible calls confession. They bring their magic paraphernalia. I kind of wonder what the scene was like. You know, people are bringing, some of the scrolls were little, some of them were probably quite long. These are pretty valuable things. And so maybe you saw one of the elders bringing up his scrolls. And then here's one of the guys in their campus ministry. Remember the lecture hall of Tyrannus? Okay, so you've got the campus student and you've got Tom Bogle there, and, oh, you had one too? Yeah. You know, the ground's level at the foot of the cross, and all of us are messed up. We're all a bit confused about something. Just thank God we got there eventually. Okay. They're bringing their paraphernalia, but giving up evil, relinquishing evil, biblically, is rarely just, okay, I stopped doing bad things. It's accompanied by words. For example, in the Proverbs, we have Proverbs 28, 13. Proverbs 28 says, Blessed are those who do what? Who confess and renounce their sin. It's not just giving it up, but it's actually telling someone about it. It's making it public. I know we'd rather just deal with it privately, you know, just Jesus and me. But it's that words. You know, we come to God, we come with words, as the prophets say. 
And so they come and they confess, and it, this is now public record, which makes fellowship a lot less weird, because people are being real. They're being real. Yes, I think this does apply. And it's certainly better. I thought of one um, ancient confession. You remember in Joshua 7, there was a guy named Achan, and they were taking Jericho, and this guy sins, and he covets, and he steals silver and clothing, and they had to go through this elaborate process, almost an inquisition, to get him to admit, yeah, I took it. I took it. I mean, they draw lots, they narrow it down tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, and then, you know, his arm is kind of being twisted. Yeah, I did it, and this is where it is. It's in my tent. I buried it, the thing I stole. This is so much better, I think. The gospel is preached. People realize the stuff that we've believed in, this idolatrous nonsense, it really is nothing. It can't hold a candle to what Jesus Christ has done. It's nothing like his majesty. It's really ridiculous. And they bring it. They have a change of thinking. And they're prompted. It's not orchestrated, but they bring the paraphernalia. They bring the words. And they repent. They renounce again. I think that's great. And so there's an increase in the church in righteousness, purity, and holiness. That is a great mark of a true church. Not to say a church that's not growing spiritually has no Christians in it, but it's morbid. A healthy church is growing in conviction and power. Righteous behavior increases because Christ is exalted. This is what happens when the gospel is truly preached. As I was preparing this message, I guess this was four or five days ago, I wrote some things I wanted to make sure I mentioned. I thought about the spirit of confession and this bonfire. And I thought about body life. This is what I wrote down. You can tell me if I'm being harsh. Beware churches. Beware of churches where it's easy to sneak in late, sneak out early, exist anonymously. Then I wrote, I need to beware of myself. (laughs) Beware of yourself, of the temptation to try to be Christians at large instead of being functioning members of the body. There's a public dimension. When people say, well, my faith is personal, of course your faith is personal. Someone else can't have it for you. It's yours. Well, they say, well, it's private. Well, of course, faith is a very private thing, but if it stops there, that's defensiveness. It's private. I don't want to talk about it. Don't make me uncomfortable. Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. To use Isaiah's words, it's private, but it's also public. So if your faith is just a private thing you don't talk about, you're either lopsided or you never really understood the gospel. The gospel is phenomenally public news. So it's public, Christianity is public, and it's private. It's both. Because the preaching of the message of Christ reaches into the inner parts. It illuminates the dark corners of our personal lives. No secrets can be kept from the Lord because ultimately all secrets will be revealed. At the last day, what we've whispered will be shouted. What we've done in secret will become a matter of public record, which is kind of an uncomfortable thought. There's some things I don't want to become public in my life. I mean, even at the last day, even if I've been a Christian 60 years with a a bill of clean health and good conduct and an honorable discharge. But this is what the Scriptures teach. So we might as well practice being open now if you really believe that one day... All is going to be in the open. This is the time to start. Okay, what is the application of this text 
to our lives, to yours and mine? Well, what scrolls, these are magical scrolls, what scrolls, what writings are sacred to you and me? It's funny because when you read it in the Greek, it's the same word as the word Bible, Biblos. It's a book, it's a scroll. So it's, a, it's exactly the same word. So they had their little scrolls, and then we have our scroll. They've got the word of man, which is just a guess in the face of the darkness and confusion of the next life. And we have the word of God, which is clear and certain. What scroll is really special to me? Are we spending time in the word? And I might say, how often? The point's not just to burn up all the bad books. It's actually to do something positive. Otherwise, the Luke 11 effect happens, where you clean up and then all the evil demons come back in and it's worse than it was before. Well, here's another question. Is there maybe in my life something that really needs to become public? And and maybe it's not even something current. Maybe it's from long ago. But you you need to go public about it. This makes a tremendous difference in our security, our relatability. I remember, I remember one thing I did when I was a teen, something of a sexual nature that involved someone else. I was very ashamed. Remember, I was studying the Bible with someone more than 10 years later. I'd never told anyone in my life, including my wife. I thought, what do I have to lose? If he doesn't become a Christian, I'll probably never see him again. I said, look, Raymond... I've never told this to anyone. I can't believe I did this, but I did. Christ sets us free from this. He started to cry. He wept by coincidence, is it? He said, there's something identical in my life. He opened up. He, I mean, he was progressing. You know, some of us, we progress slowly in faith. You know, in a few days, this guy was baptized. There's something about opening up that helps people see that the faith is real. And so when they go home, it's not just, okay, now I'm focusing on my barbecue or my afternoon of golf I'm watching. But it's, it's actually real. Is there something that needs to become public? Is it anger? Ben Barnett will help us brothers soon on that, if you know what I'm referring to. Could it be lack of integrity at work? Lack of integrity. I won't tell you the story, but we knew a woman when we lived in Australia who not only lacked integrity, she was pretending to be a lawyer, and she wasn't. She was practicing law for years and years and years. She had never gone to law school. It was part of her feeling of, you know, this persona. You know, it's your real self, and then there's this self that's projected. Everyone thought she was incredible. But eventually we figured out something doesn't make sense. The story of the fake lawyer. You can ask me in fellowship if you want to. Is there something that needs to become public with work? Could it be something with pornography? A question that if it's not asked in our modern society, you almost wonder, why is it not asked? It must be a cover-up. Because it's so prevalent and so real, the preaching of the gospel cannot really be fleshed out over any period of time without dealing with that. You can say, well, that's private. Well, that's the whole problem. It is private. (laughs) That's the whole point. Could it be something we've lied about? Could it be something we've done to hurt someone else? Is there something that needs to become public? And not just, the point's not just to change it, but to come with words, to come and confess, not just to renounce, but to give it up. Another lesson I get from this passage is that sometimes faith has financial implications. Uh, we certainly spend differently when we become Christians, but, you know, 
Some of those guys who had the nicer scrolls are probably a bit bummed out. Yeah, I guess I should throw it on the bonfire too. But I paid good money for that scroll. Think about that. And then there are degrees of understanding and sanctification. Sounds very technical. We, we start understanding the gospel. At one point we become Christians. And if you're not, just stand back and think about this process. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you're perfect, but you continue to be sanctified. Usually we talk about justification through Jesus' blood when we're saved. And usually sanctification refers to that process where day by day we change for the rest of our lives. We never get there, but we keep on changing. That process of sanctification can take time. And I think we have to be very careful not to judge someone's commitment. Well, he's never, he wasn't baptized properly, or she's just bad-hearted. Careful not to be judgmental in that way when it's really only a matter of immaturity. Stuff that would come to light and eventually give it, keep preaching the gospel, they'll come clean, they'll bring up the paraphernalia, and they'll talk about it. 1 Corinthians 3 is a great chapter showing us that what could be mistaken as lack of commitment may just be lack of maturity. We need to be careful about judging motives, 1 Corinthians 4. Of course, that's not the same as judging scandalous behavior that destroys the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 5. Just read, read all of 1 Corinthians. While upholding a high standard of discipleship, what I'm saying is this. We still need to maintain a gracious spirit. I, I think it's possible for church to have a high standard but still be gracious. Not to have to have an inquisition, to be more like the Ephesians than like Achan and his sorry family. So, what are the areas of application? I think keeping the scriptures central in our lives, being open, giving every area of our life to God, even financial area, and giving people time to mature in Christ. I think it's fair. I think that comes from this text. And if so, we need to listen. We need to not just read over. I know it's only three verses. Verses 18, 19, and 20. You could skip it. You could blink and miss it. But everything in the Bible is there for a reason. And even though it happened in the first century, this happened in the first century A.D., it doesn't mean that we can somehow ignore it. If we do, we rob ourselves. We rob ourselves of something that could have enriched us spiritually. Conclusion. If we are Christians, we have no need to fear the future. Fear, typically expressed in superstition, is baseless. We, we all have things we do. We want to know the future. Maybe it's horoscopes. Maybe it's fortune cookies. I got, I got four fortunes in one cookie last week. You know, I'm sure at least one of them was right. <laughs> but we worry about the future. And I know someone said, never before has the future, never before has the future so rapidly become the past. Isn't that true? The future is very rapidly becoming the past. But we shouldn't be more flustered by the future than Jesus was. How he approached it, that's the way I would like to approach it. We don't need to have fear of death. As Hebrews 2 says, Jesus came to take away our fear of death. It's not just a guess. The Bible isn't just a guess about what happens after death. It's more than an educated guess, too. Because there's actually someone who, who crossed over and came back and told us about it. We need not fear death or financial hardship, and even in poverty, the Lord will be with us. Remember Paul, the apostle, Philippians 4. Paul had learned the secret of being content, whether he had very little money or a lot of money 
whether he was living high on the hog or low on the dog or whatever, uh, he learned the secret. And so we, we can be free. Don't worry, I know, but I'm hurting my, my, my portfolio if I destroyed these scrolls. Yeah, they were, but look at the result. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What really counts in life was now taking place, not this stuff that, that really doesn't make any difference. Faith never knows where it's being led, but faith loves and knows the one who is leading. Oswald Chambers. If we're not Christians, I urge you to develop a respect for the Scriptures, for the immense power of God, for the tremendous power of Jesus Christ. If you are Christians, just keep on developing it more and more. We need not fear the future. And may all of us come better and better to realize, as did the Ephesians, that Christ stands above all the powers. He is supreme. He holds the key to the future, yours and mine, and the key to all of history. God bless you. Let's take this passage away, meditate on it, and let the Word of God speak to us.